Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Dave's front office is open for business. Society and the basketball world are both changing rapidly, and we have two Hall of Famers who have truly seen it all. Both are historical figures in the sport for reasons well beyond their playing and coaching skills. Dave's Front Office is a production of Pure Hoops Media. Our host is Dave Wolf, who has spent a half a century in every conceivable NBA role, except owner, but he's working on it. He's been a player, assistant coach, head coach, assistant GM, and GM. As a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, he was once insulted on the court by a ref who called him an Ivy Leaguer. Here's Dave Wall. Welcome to this episode of Dave's Front Office. I'm your host, Dave Wall, and I have two very special guests today, George Raveling and Wayne Embry both of whom have been enshrined in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame for their accomplishments and influence on the game of basketball. George and Wayne, welcome to the show. Thank you. David. Um, George, I want to start with you. Um, you and Wayne had very different situations growing up. Um, you lost your father at nine and your mom was institutionalized when you were 13. So you were raised by your grandmother. How do, how do you think this shaped you as, as a young age not to have your parents around uh, as you entered your teenage years? Well, uh, as it, it turned out, uh, by the time I was 13, I was sent away to a uh, Catholic charity, sent me away to a private boarding school in Pennsylvania. It was called St. Michael's uh, School for Boys in uh, Hoban Heights, Pennsylvania, which is up in the Scranton, uh, Wilkes-Barre area, northeast part of the state of Pennsylvania. And so I spent the, the rest of my formal education at a, in, a, in a private boys boarding school. And what was interesting, I went from a, a predominantly black uh, uh, environment when I, when I was growing up in D.C., in the, in the uh, late uh, 30s and the 40s, uh, Washington, D.C. was 73% black. And rarely, uh, there, there could be two weeks go by and I, and I might not see a white person in a period. And, um, and so then when my mom, my dad died when I was nine and when I was 13, my mom had a nervous breakdown and she was institutionalized for the rest of her life. So now, what do you do with George and through the Catholic Charities? They sent me up there. Well, when I get to St. Michael's, uh, they have about 150 students and 10 of us are black. So uh, all of a sudden, I go from a, a totally black uh, environment. Or in, any, in those days, we black folks have had so many names. In those days, we were called colored or Negroes. And uh, we're where African-Americans are black and whatever. So I don't know of any race that's had more connotations than we have. But anyway, there was 10, 10 uh, Negroes or colored son in the entire school. So now I'm in a predominantly white environment for the first time 
in my life. And the school structurally was uh, the nuns did, did all the teaching and the administrative part was done by, by a priest. And so uh, what's interesting about it, at this point in my life, racism has, was never made an issue. When I was growing up, uh, there, were, there were rarely any conversations around the house about race. Uh, uh, we would talk about Negroes or, or, or colored, but, but there was nothing in these substantial conversations about white. Uh, white people were there. They, they were the power structure. And, uh, and you, you, you had to figure out a way how to survive uh, with, with, with no power and no influence. And so then when I get to St. Michael's, now my formal education starts to transpire. And, uh, and so from that point until uh, on, I, I was in a predominant white environment. The, the, uh, my senior year, I ended up getting a scholarship to Villanova. And still, until I got to Villanova, at no point did, did race play a dominant role in, in, in my life that there, there was rarely at St. Michael's was race ever discussed white or black. Uh, ba basically the nuns were primarily interested in, in, in instructing you and, and, and helping you grow into be, uh, an adult. And so the, unlike today where race is a, is a, is a, a prominent factor and, as young black people grow up, it wasn't that way in my life during that time. And it's a strange circumstance, but the truth is the truth. Um, Wayne, yours, yours was a little different because you grew up on a farm in Springfield, Ohio, and it was called the Hill, that area. And your farm was really a series of homes, which were all relatives or family. And so to me, what was interesting was there was always a source of family history, support, discipline, and experiences that were shared with you as you were a kid growing up. How did that sort of shape you? Well, I wouldn't trade for anything. Yeah, we, were, we grew up on a small farm uh, outside of Springfield, Ohio. And we were pretty much isolated from the rest of the, the, the world. And of course, we went to school, and uh, there were maybe five or six colored people or Negroes in school, as we said back then. And we uh, really didn't, I don't recall encountering any problems back in those days, except maybe uh, after the Joe Wilson, I may have to. I might have had to uh, fight the next day because Joe Lewis always won. And uh, so there was another guy, a tough guy in school that always wanted to take it out on me. But uh, I, could, I could fend for myself. I wasn't small. <laughs> and so uh, but grades one through nine, it was, uh, it was, you know, terrific, no, no serious encounters. And when I first faced uh, racism, uh, because let me back up and say in those days, 
we were taught by our parents what we could, what we couldn't do, where we could go, where we couldn't go. And so we kind of avoided it. We lived in kind of a vacuum. And so uh, when I was in, in junior high school, we, we played in the tournament game. And after the game, we stopped at a lunch counter to uh, grab a bite to eat. And I sat there and sat there, and no one served me. And so the coach says, well, Wayne, aren't you hungry? And I said, yeah, I am, but no one will wait on me. And so they tried to get the waiter's attention. The waiter ignored him. And the manager here, the manager came out and said, aren't you going to serve Wayne? He says, no, we don't serve color people in here. And he says, well, we're, if you don't serve him, we're all leaving. And so we all got up and left. And the white kids had eaten. And uh, the manager says, who's going to pick up the tab? Who's going to pay the tab? And coach said, you are. And so uh, that was my first experience of being uh, uh, not served or realizing that I was black and that uh, racism and discrimination existed around me. Uh, I'd have other occasions where we'd go work on a neighbor's farm, help them bale hay and lunch break. The white helpers would go in the house and eat and uh, he would tell black guys are let stay outside, he would let us inside. And uh, you know there's little subtle occasions like that for the most but for the most part uh, we didn't really experience that much because we, we were isolated, lived in a vacuum away from most of it. We knew we couldn't go to the movies in town, uh, so we just avoided it. And this was this was something to you as you're growing up as a kid because of the, all the family experiences that you kind of, you obviously didn't think it was right, but you kind of accepted it. It was almost like, well, my parents accepted it, even though they they didn't like it. They knew it was wrong. I mean, at at that point, there wasn't there wasn't this this public outrage about it. It was kind of accepted that the 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 black people were going to have a substation sort of in life to the whites. And I, I remember one thing in your book. Um, I think you were going into high school, and you were going to be maybe the only black person in your high school. And you went for like a day or two or three. You got called some names, and you came home and told your dad, uh, "I want to, I want to leave. I don't want to go to that high school anymore." And I think your dad told you, you know, that you were going to go back. Yeah, I uh, actually what Dave, I uh, it wasn't a high school in our township, so I had the option of going to uh, high school, which was thirteen mile away, or into Springfield Springfield High School, which was the very much integrated high school. But uh, my dad played baseball with the coach at uh, called Tecumseh High School. And uh, he says, uh, you know, why don't you choose to go to Tecumseh because my other classmates were going to Tecumseh High School. So I said, okay, there'd be a comfort level there. And there was one other black person with me and the first couple of days of school was rough. She quit. The other black person quit because she couldn't couldn't uh, live with it, and so she quit school. And so uh, 
after about the third day, I said, well, I'm going to quit too, because I, you know, I had the first time I'd experienced name calling and that sort of thing. So I said, I'm not wanted, so I'm going to quit. So on the way home, I uh, got off the bus and thought about quitting and took off across the field, going to my house, and I happened to run into my grandfather on the way. And he saw I was upset because I went ran, running to him. I said, what's wrong? And I said, well, I'm going to quit school. The, the people called me names and weren't very kind. And he says, no, you're not going to quit. Go back and be the very best student you can be and be the very best person you can be. And the rest will take care of itself. You have to be as good or twice as good. That's what you got to be, but you got to do it. And so... Uh, I left him still determined to quit school. And <clears throat> when my mother came home from work, I told her the experience. And she said, no, you're not quitting school. You're going to go back to school. You're going to student to quit school. And so uh, when dad came home, I thought I'd get support from him because he quit school. And I told him, he said, nope, you're going back to school tomorrow. You're not quitting. And so he said, you've got to go back. You've got to prove that you belong. You have to be as good or twice as good. That's what you got to do. And so I went back, and still there's still some abuse, but uh, I made friends with some of the other students, and uh, the experience got better as I uh, continued on in, in in school. And I coach at the school was very supportive of me and had my back. So. Uh, as time passed on, I got to know the students, they got to know me, and it was just a terrific experience. But, you know, all those things inspired me to try to be something, make something, make a difference later on in life. George, you know, you, you said that you really didn't run into any examples sort of, of racism or discrimination until you got to Villanova. And I, I think there was one incident that that I recall reading about in Villanova where you were you guys were going to play a game at Wake Forest and they wouldn't let you stay at the hotel. I think the, the bellhop even tossed your luggage out of the elevator saying that, you know, um, no Negroes were ever going to play here or something like that. Um, when that happened, what emotions were, were, were going through you? Well, this was the first uh, authentic uh, confrontation I'd ever had a, 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 as it related to to race uh and uh, in those days obviously there was the absence of technology and 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 television and and so there was uh when we got down there uh most uh they didn't realize that that uh, we there were uh, black players on the team, and so we were staying. We took the train down to Winston Salem from Philadelphia, and uh, we went to the hotel. I'll never forget. It was called the Robert E. Lee, and and so we 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 stood off in the side in the in the lobby as a team, and the coach went over to register us. And get the 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 room keys and so forth, so that he had a rooming list, and he just said, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
raveling in in uh, in in, in white, and you'll be white. And so we go uh, uh, and 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 get on. And in those days, you didn't have automatic elevators, so they had an elevator operator. And so when the ele- we we get on as a team, as many we could get on there with our luggage and. The, the elevator operator comes who's white and he looks up and he sees us in the elevator and he says, uh, what are you niggas doing in here? Where are you going? And we, and we didn't say anything. And of course the white employers that were on the elevator, they started to get emotional. What are you talking about? I don't call them that. And so the guy picks up our bags and throws them out in the lobby and said, not moving the elevator. And so he went over and, and told, and, the person behind the desk and he, they said, Oh, we didn't know they had any black players on the team or I didn't say black. And so anyway, it, it, it turned into a little bit of a demonstration. So the players were, were uh, said, well, we're not going to play it. And so um, they talked to the man, they call the manager. He comes over and he, and he, 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 I remember distinctly him telling our coach, because uh, we were in listen, listening distance, he said, Coach, if we let these in stay at this hotel, no self-respecting white person will ever stay here again. We'll go out of business in that. And so basically by this time, why we, as a team, we were talking about going back. But And then Yubi and I had our own conversation. We said, look, we came all the way down here. We're ranked the top 10 in the country. This is a big game. Why don't we just play the damn game and and, and go back and, and and we'll worry about it going later. And the other thing was we couldn't get a train back until the next afternoon anyway. So we were going to have to have some place to stay. And I remember that um, I had a friend over at Winston-Salem uh, State, uh, Cleo Hill, who played for Big House Games over there. So we called over and I got a hold of Cleo. He said, I was uh, stand by. I'm going to go get Coach Gaines. And so Big House Gaines came over and he talked with the, the manager of the hotel and so forth. And they still weren't going to give in. So he said, well, look, uh, he tells my coach, he said, look, they can come over and stay at our, at, at our campus. I'll put them up. I'll make sure they're back and forth for practice or whatever. They get something to eat. And so, uh, actually, the, the starting point guard on that Wake Forest team was Billy Tacker. He was a hell of a player. They had a very, very good team. And and so we played the game, and and we 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 uh, went on back up on uh, on the train. But that was the first confrontation I ever had where uh, on, on true racism. And uh, but it it it, it, it was. It's it started to create a, a broader awareness uh, of, of of people uh, uh, hatred for for colors or, 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 or Negroes and then the, the, the it was an additional time my senior year we played we played uh, West Virginia at West Virginia when Jerry West was there it's actually in his book. And uh, so we were the first black. They had no idea that we that we had any black players on the team. We took the stayed in Pittsburgh, took the bus down to Morgantown, and to play the game. And until the warmups, they had no idea that there was any blacks on the team. And and um, 
and so uh, Jerry West was was an incredible pl- player, not just in pros but in the college, and he was like a god there. And they, and when uh, there was a play in the game where he stole the ball and was going going in for a layup, and I was chasing him down from behind, and and uh, and I. I had, I thought I had it paced. So just when he was, would be releasing the layup, uh, shot, I could, I could block the shot. And just as he started to, to, to make his move to release the ball, he saw me coming out of the, the corner of his eye, closing down on him real quick. And he slowed down and I was going so fast that I couldn't stop. And I hit him and knocked him into the stands. And utter silence went over the, the, the uh, Morgantown uh, uh, field house. I mean, it was like God that had just been smacked and hit, knocked to the ground. And so I'm looking at him, and there's utter silence in, in the field house. And I'm thinking to myself, God, please let this white boy get up. So I reach out and, to, to pick him up, and he grabs my hand, and I pick him up. And, and then he, he, he pats me on the back, and... And then, uh, thank God, because otherwise I'm not sure I'd still be alive. And uh, if it's in Jerry's book, but those were uh, the two times at, at Villanova when when I uh, came face to face with the new reality of racism. You know, Wayne, you had some some things that I thought were were more subtle in some ways. Um, you know, you had an excellent high school career. Um, you just worked hard. You got better and better. And uh, I, you wanted to go to Dayton University. And I think your current coach in high school was close with the Dayton coach. And so you felt you're probably going to get recruited by them. But you never got recruited by them. And I think you found out later why. Yeah, that's true. I grew up listening to Dayton basketball. And uh, I got better as a basketball player. I didn't know if college was in the future, but I didn't know anything about recruiting and how that process went. And so uh, I was uh, very much interested in going to University of Dayton if I were going to get recruited. And as it turned out, I was recruited by Ohio State. And uh, I visited there several times. And... Then the coach at Miami came to visit and wanted to recruit me to go to Miami. And so I went through that process and visited Miami and decided that's where I wanted to go to school. I fell in love with the campus, small school, uh, and uh, going through the uh, old Withrow Hall, which is where the team played, and most of the offices were there. And on the walrus, people would had Miami background, either as a student, student athlete, or as a coach. And I saw a picture of Paul Brown and Woody Hayes and Bo Schenbeckler and uh, Earl Blake and Walter Austin. I said, "Boy, all these people went to Miami. This is where I want to come." So. I decided that's where I wanted to go. So <clears throat> I got back to uh, school and I said to my high school coach, I said, you know, I'm going to choose Miami. And he said, uh, well, I'm glad you did. And he said, I, you, I know you want to go to the University of Dayton, but the reason why they didn't recruit you is because 
who are covered, and they play a number of games in the South, and Coach didn't want to expose him to that. So that's uh, why he hadn't recruited any colored players or Negro players, do you call it back then? Played a, in a tournament game in Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky, and that's where I got exposed to having to eat in the kitchen and not being able to eat with the rest of the team and those sort of things. But uh, we did that. And then my senior year, we played the University of Kentucky in the regional tournament. And pretty much the same thing. We, could, we had to eat in our rooms, couldn't eat in the restaurants, which was, you know, again, just the way things were back in those days. This is, we accepted it and uh, because that's, we didn't have much of a voice then. And so we did what uh, coaches tried to protect us as much as they could, as much as they could, but, uh, you know, we just kind of tried to avoid circumstances like that. And it was a whole new experience for me uh, in going through the South. My senior year, I played the North-South All-Star game and through the Raleigh, North Carolina. And Hal Greer was on the same team as I was, and we couldn't stay in the hotel. We had to stay in a private home. But we wanted to go to a movie the evening before the game, went to the theater, and they wouldn't let us in. They said, you got to go around back, go up in the balcony. And so that was another encounter that I had back in those days. And I look back over the years in the 40s, 50s, and even the early 60s before the Civil Rights Movement. And I just get somewhat emotional thinking about those days and the humility that existed. But looking back, I think it inspired me. It was an inspiration. Um, I think there was also, um, at one time you wanted, you were thinking of becoming a graduate assistant coach and uh, they turned you down and later you found out what the reason was for that too. Yeah, I wanted to, you were like a lot of the former players because I had no idea that pro ball was uh, going to be an op option. And so I wanted to be a graduate assistant, work on my master's degree. And I was told that well, I can't do that because they didn't want any colored boys on the bench as a coach. You know, one of the things that, that has impressed me with you guys, um, knowing you for a long time, both of you, is you both accomplished firsts in your society, in your careers. And the first being the first black man to reach a certain position in sports or society. Um, at the time, did either of you understand that how these first might inspire others coming up behind you? Uh, and this is uh, George. Um, in, in my situation, I, I, I did. Uh, the first thing uh, about this idea of being first, uh, I, I, I think it, it's a byproduct of this racial, uh, race as a construct. Uh, it, 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 I never, particularly to this day, never felt that that was uh, something of uh, that I should have an immense amount of pride 
uh, about it just characterized that 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 uh the, the the environment and the times in which we we live it it was obvious to to me at washington state that uh, as the first coach there that I now wear the expectations of other people, uh, white people and black people. Their expectations of of of, of me as a as a as a first of all as a as a, a black person and, and and as a black coach. Uh, it, but failure was not an option because if I fail, that close that uh, closed the pathway for other opportunities. And so I, I, I had to, to succeed, but it also meant that every single day you, you were a walking billboard for black coaches. And, and, and uh, I had to make sure that, uh, that I went about the task in a, in, in, a, in a professional manner because people are waiting to see, uh, can you coach? Uh, can you uh, lead a program? Uh, can you fit into this community? When at that time there were only eight teams in the pack, uh, eight at the time. The two Arizonas and, and Colorado and, and Utah were not, weren't in the conference then. And when you look at the geographics of the pack eight, uh, it, it should be the last. Uh, well, I should say it would be the last place in the world to hire a black coach. It's right on the border of Idaho and Washington. It had less than one percent population of blacks, and those were students. And it was in a predominantly rural agricultural area, and and uh, and it was a gamble for them because I'd never been a head coach before. Uh, I'm coming; uh, it's the first time in my life I've been west of 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 the uh, of Chicago, and uh, so it was a gamble, but. They had a great president who believed in me and a, and a great AD and they were patient and they were disciplined and the community supported me. I, I, re, I took that job in 1972 for 24,500 and, and thought I hit the lottery. You couldn't even get a good assistant today for $24,000. And the one thing I always remember about the president was how supportive and committed he was to my success. I met with him for about 45 minutes. They had told me in, in the very beginning, the job was mine to turn down. And when I was, as, as the president was Dr. Glenn Terrell. And when I was walking out of his office after the meeting, he said to me, he said, coach, can I say one more thing to you before you go? I said, yes, sir. He said, I want you to remember this. He said, I'll always be there when you're losing. I'll never be there when you're winning. And basically that was the way the relationship was in those early days when we were building, he was always supportive and, and, and not supportive symbolically. He was there always encouraging me, always uh, saying, we believe in you. And so, uh, it, it it all worked out, but your original questions did you, did did you recognize the, the 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 pressure you were under as being the first? Yes, I I, I recognized it, but it it was not a driving force at that time. 
what's the amazing thing about Washington State? I, I was there 11 years and never had one overt racist uh, incident. Uh, no one uh, that I know to my face ever called me at the N word or anything. I never had anybody write me any hate mail or anything. And, and so my circumstances are highly unusual. The, the, the path I came along as it related to, to racism. But uh, I, I did feel uh, that I had to prove to people that I could coach. Um, Wayne, for you, the, did the first have any special significance or was it just a reminder of how many obstacles that were put in your way that you took that challenge and got past? Well, when I was named general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks, I was asked that question, uh, <clears throat> do you see any significance of being the first? And I said, only if it is significant to others. To me, I'm very appreciative of getting the opportunity, and I'm just going to do the very best I can to succeed and perform in the job as if I were a general manager without any color attached to it. Uh, and I, uh, of course, emotionally and internally, I felt that uh, I had a job to do and I had to succeed, and I put probably pressure on myself to uh, be successful, but I wanted to be the best I could be. And uh, I also remember saying to uh, those who ask, uh, what's it like being the first? And I says, well, uh, I, I'm just gonna do the very best job I can do. And I said, I just hope I'm not the last. And so I proceeded on and started reflecting back on my childhood and of course I grew up with Jackie Robinson and what he went through with being the first major league baseball player and how he persevered through it and uh, I said you know let that be an inspiration to me uh, it's not going to be easy every day I'm going to be confronted with some situations that probably are unkind but I got to persevere through it do the very best I can and so I, I let all the hate mail and all that be an inspiration to me. Um, George, as we started to talk about, you, you, your path went into coaching. Uh, you started as an assistant coach um, with your alma mater, Villanova, and then you became uh, the first black assistant in the ACC. We're working for Lefty Drysdale at Maryland, and then you went on to Washington State for as the first black head coach in the PAC. What was the PAC eight back then? So. What made you get into coaching? Uh, never in my life did I ever dream or anticipate that one day I would be a coach. It was a foreign matter to me. I, um, but uh, when I graduated from Villanova, uh, I started out, I, I graduated in 1960 with a BS in economics and I started out working as a marketing analyst for Sunoco or Sun Oil Company. And uh, I, whenever Villanova would recruit a black player uh, in basketball or any of the sports as far as that's concerned, they, they, uh, the athletic director would always ask me to host the player. 
when when John Thompson, he, he I, I knew he wasn't going to come to uh, Villanova, but we were both from D.C. We knew each other. When he visited Villanova, I hosted him. And so most of the players that I hosted, they all ended up uh, signing uh, to participate in sports at Villanova, whether it was football or track and field. When I was a student at Villanova, the number one sport was track and field. And they were the national champions. But so I continued to help Jack Kraft recruit players, uh, Wally Jones and George Leftwich, Howard Porter, a bunch of guys, uh, Johnny Jones. Uh, I, I, I recruited those guys. And so Jack decided, you know what? I, you need to come on. He kept saying, "You, I, I, I want you to be on my staff. And I'd say, coach, I have no interest in, in coaching. But he was so persistent. He would stay on me and on me. So finally I said to him, I said, all right, look, here's the deal. I'll work part-time for you guys, but I'm going to stay on at Sunoco, but I'll, I'll figure it out so that I can still do the recruiting because I wouldn't, all I did was the recruiting. I didn't sit on the bench or anything like that because I had my job at, at Sunoco. So finally, uh, I, I uh, he talked me into to doing it full time the last couple years. And, um, and then I, I, I would run into a lefty Giselle on the road. And so, uh, in 72, I ran into him at a high school game and he said, Hey, if I get the Maryland job, would you come as my assistant? And we talked about it and I said, yes. And so lefty said, well, look, I, I, he's at Davidson as a head coach then and they're in top 10 program. And so lefty says, look, I'm recruiting this boy, Charlie Scott. It's down to us in North Carolina. If I get Charlie Scott, I'm staying at Davis. And if I don't, I'm going to uh, take the Maryland job if you'll come. And I said, okay. So it, 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 Charlie Scott ends up picking Carolina and lefty goes to Maryland. And, and so then I, uh, now I'm in coaching full time, but it was never something that I as, aspired to be, particularly as a young person. When I was growing up in DC, dreaming was a luxury. I we're trying to survive from day to day and let it know, uh, be a coach. But I, uh, when I look back on it now, it was, it, it, it was a blessing in disguise, uh, because the game of basketball became my GPS and it, it, it took me places I'd never heard of. It taught me valuable lessons and it helped me grow as a person. And, and so I, I owe so much to the, uh, more to the game of basketball than 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 the coaching profession, but uh, the coaching profession kept me uh, close to the game of basketball. But basketball it, it, it has it turned out to be my mistress. Little did I know the first time I bounced a basketball that it was it was going to uh, uh, be my savior. Did you, um, George, when you you got the head coaching job? Um, were you accepted right away by the other head coaches out there? Uh, yeah, I was. Actually, if, if you take the eight coaches in the conference, then four of them are in the Hall of Fame right now. Uh, John, John Wooden, uh, Marv Harshman, uh, myself, and who am I in Washington, Oregon? Uh, oh, God. 
uh, Harshman, Rav, uh, oh, and Ralph Miller at Oregon State. So 48 guys ended up in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Ralph Miller at Oregon State, Wooden at UCLA, myself and Marv Harshman at Washington. But the coaches were really uh, – uh, Coach Wooden was, was probably more supportive than anybody. When, when we played them the first time, uh, in those days, you played uh, in the conference games, you played back-to-back on Friday and Saturday. And so uh, I called Coach Wooden and, and said, Coach, when you come up, uh, can we have breakfast? And he said, absolutely. And I met him for breakfast, and, and we talked. He was very supportive. And he, he told me, he says, George, don't. You you got a tough job ahead of you, but you you'll be you'll be fine. You just got to work hard and and stick to your convictions. And he was always supportive. Anytime I was around him, I could uh, he would he would go out of his way uh, to, to meet with me. And the other coaches in the league were the same way. Uh, they all basically wanted to to see me succeed in that. And so I, I, I felt like I got tremendous support uh, uh, for, for, uh, from the, uh, the the coaches in the league. Did you did you recruit white or black players any differently when you when you were recruit, recruiting them? No, I I, 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 I in my career I, I never recruited players. I recruited mothers, and. <laughs> And, and and so that was one of the reasons why I think I had success because I, uh, most of the people spend all their time recruiting the kid. I, I, I'd spend more time recruiting the moms because when you stop and think about it, a child spends more time with his mom than he does anybody else in the family, especially when he's growing up. And I don't know many kids that are going to go against their, their mom and, and her wishes in that. And the the best one of the best players I ever coached was and got me started at Washington State was a kid named Steve Padakis. He was from St. Lawrence High School in Chicago at the time. Is six ten. We ended up surprisingly beating Notre Dame and Tennessee to get him, and he came. And and uh, their family were devout Catholics, and and so I would talk to his mom and 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 that. And so it's now it's getting down to the end. And I, and I, and I think, okay, when this thing comes down to the end, he's going to end up going to Notre Dame because of the Catholic religion. And so one night I was talking to his mom and, and, uh, and, that, and, uh, and I said, Oh, it's, it, it, it's been a, a amazing experience recruiting Steve and that I said, but I know he's going to end up going to, to uh, Notre Dame. And so his mother says, oh, you think you're so smart, huh? I said, well, that's the truth. She says, no, it's not. And she said, he's going to Washington State. I said, how do you know? She said, one thing I know about Stevie, he doesn't like to see his mother cry. And if he doesn't go to Washington State, I'm going to cry. <laughs> and, 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 and so I always recruited the Mahams. If it, I felt like if I if, if I got the mom on my side, I'm going to get to get. And very rarely did I ever lose a kid where I ended up having, uh, where I spent a, uh, an amazing amount of time recruiting a mom. 
Um, Wayne, you remained on a different path. You stayed on a path as a player in the NBA when the NBA was still struggling in the late 50s. You know, what stands out for you about those early years in the league? Well, it was a struggle. Uh, attendance wasn't great in most cities. We didn't have national television. We'd have local radio. Uh, and so it wasn't nearly the revenues then as there are today. And most teams did struggle. But uh, I think uh, as time passed through the leadership of Walter Kennedy and David Stern and now, presently, Adam Silver, I think we made tremendous progress, but it was a struggle back in those early days. Uh, you know, most teams would have a quota system that uh, it wouldn't have more than three blacks on the team because they wanted to sell tickets. And they didn't think that uh, the, the white population would support the team if they had too many black players. And of course, that broke when uh, Celtics started five and continued to win championships. So that kind of broke that barrier. And uh, I think uh, as time passed, the NBA expanded, more opportunities became available and started getting uh, television and uh, other revenues came in sponsorships and that sort of thing. So the NBA really took off, but it was a struggle back in the early 50s and, and uh, even through the early 60s, it was a struggle. Um, there were only, I think, eight teams back then. So you guys didn't even need scouting reports, did you? You knew the guy you were playing because you played him so many times, I think. No, we didn't need scouting reports. I knew that having to play Bill Russell or Will Chamberlain eight times, I knew exactly what they were going <laughs> Do you, do you think many of today's players have any idea how difficult the playing and travel conditions were back then? No, I get to, get to play as telling our players that in Toronto and the other teams I've been with, they are in awe. They just can't believe that we take buses, uh, sometimes take trains, but uh, they, uh, they would listen and and be grateful that we paved the way for them as they get on their charter flights now and meals on the tea, on the plane and and uh, usually after practice well, before they go to the airport there's a meal they still get their meal money a hundred right. plus dollars a day. Um, have you ever thought about the difference in your own playing career if you had had the type of practice facility, nutritional guidance, strength and conditioning coaches, charter travel, first-class hotels with a really good bed, and film study that's available to players today. Um, would we have seen you shooting pick-and-pop threes instead of pick-and-rolls? <laughs> I know. They, they, have, uh, they, have, they have everything now. they got <clears throat> strength and conditioning coach, uh, three or four people to work in. There used to be one trainer back when we played, Dave. Right. Well, now we have four or five on our training staff. And, and <clears throat> my guy, Alec McKechnie, who is a sports scientist, uh, is their, their uh, 
leader, and he uh, he has a staff of about five or six people, and it's amazing. Uh, players don't want for anything, you know. They got uh, the weight conditioning guy. They said they got uh, the uh, massage therapists. They have they have it all, and we had that back in, in my day. Who knows? I might have played past fifty. <laughs> Um, you know, when, when Oscar Robertson joined you in Cincinnati, um, you guys really developed the pick and roll play, which has been a signature staple of offenses throughout the league, even today. It's a big key to everybody's offense. Did, did the coach teach you that play, or did you and Oscar, just based on your skills, kind of figure that out by yourself? No, I think the coach figured it out. And Oscar would always say to me, set a pick, but well, let me get me free, set a pick. Like he needed it, he didn't really need it, but it did make, make it easier for him. But uh, well, that was very much part of our offense that the coach put in, and, and uh, we perfected it because I figured, you know, if I said pick for Oscar, something good's going to happen. He's either going to score the ball, or uh, if I said to pick properly and roll and seal my man in the process, he's going to lay it off to me going to the basket. And we perfected that. And uh, Oscar was very much appreciative to do it. He was also very demanding because if he laid the ball, and no matter where he put it, he said, you better get it, big fella. <laughs> and so we perfected the pick and roll and pretty much like Stockton and Malone did. And I'm trying to think of some current state players that do it well, but because that's, that's still very much part of the game. But, uh, no, that was very much part of our offense, and, and I think it probably, probably much, pretty much saved my career, helped my career to be able to play for the number of years that I did. I always think it helps a player's career when he gets a great nickname, and, and you got one called, you were called Wayne the Wall for the um, picks that nobody could seem to get over. So I, I think, you know, that pick and roll has lasted for, you know, the entire history, I think, of the NBA. And it, it certainly was a testament to um, yours and Oscar's ability to just play off each other. Um, this was a time, as you and Georgia both said, when there were very few black players in the league. There was a quota system, even though it might not have been public, it was, you know, behind the scenes. But you know, as we've seen in some movies recently and you guys talking, the black players in the league tried to take care of each other. I mean, if you came into a town, didn't uh, the black player who was in that town try and have you over for dinner to eat with his family? Yeah, we, uh, we were on the road because we couldn't eat in restaurants and that. Uh, we did. Uh, we would entertain the visiting team because uh, they couldn't eat in restaurants. Uh, and uh, it became kind of a thing during the 60s. And, and uh, you know, we'd go out and compete just as hard, though. It didn't matter. Um, were there places, did you guys eventually compile a list of places, the, the black players in the league, where um, you could tell each other where you could go, where you couldn't go, um, which, which everybody kind of understood as you came into a town? I remember my very first game played against the Detroit Pistons, and Earl Lloyd kind of pulled me to the side and he kind of told me, he says, Wayne, it's very important how you conduct yourself 
there aren't many of us and we want to stay. And so he kind of told me the do's and don'ts, where to's and where not to's and how to really interact with your teammates. And our teammates were terrific though. They, they were welcoming and I can't think of any that really because we were black shunned us or didn't make us feel part of it and of the team. And I, I, I think it's terrific that, uh, you know, that's why I like team sports. You know, you got basketball, 12 players coming from diverse backgrounds, working towards a common goal and that's to win. And so it really didn't matter. Coming up in part two of our conversation with George Ratling and Wayne Embry, we'll discuss how basketball has taught society many lessons about how people from different races and backgrounds can work together towards a common goal. We will also examine how African-American coaches like John Thompson and John Cheney, both of who passed away in recent months, were more than athletic figures. They were teachers whose lessons borrowed from great black leaders of their time. In some ways, uh, Thompson and Cheney were basketball's answer to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. They, you know, Cheney was a was a was a hardcore radical, uh, uh, a great articulator of of his uh, 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 and always simple wisdom. But they, uh, it, to me, they were I call them the two wise men, and uh, they 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 their true value. Uh, led in leadership. Uh, they, 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 they were far more leaders and role models than, than, than just basketball coaches. And they were more than friends. They were my role models. Thanks to my guests, Wayne Embry and George Raveling for their wisdom and perspective. Thanks also to our producer, Bruce Bernstein, and to our editor, Kristen Woolley. Please join us next time for the rest of our conversation, including a firsthand account of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech from George, who provided security for Dr. King on that historic day in 1963. Dave's Front Office with your host, Dave Wool, is a production of Pure Hoops Media. 